0: guys, welcome back to That Vegan Podcast with your host, me, Jamie Johnson. I really want to keep today's intro as short as possible, so I'm just going to dive straight in. Today's podcast is with a guy called Alex Lockwood. Alex is a university pr- professor at the uh, the University of Sunderland, and and I spoke to Alex a little while back in his uh, city centre studio in Newcastle, and we talked about lots of things. We talked about his book, The Pig in Thin Air. We talked about relinquishing masculinity, his animal advocacy work, his fellowship, uh, a, something called the Churchill Fellowship, where he um, he went on a journey across North America, meeting meeting various people, including Gene Bauer, somebody that. That probably most of you will have heard of. Um, we talk about climate change, we get into a little bit about Cowspiracy, and we talk about his podcast as well, um, where he talks about relinquishing masculinity. Um, that's it, I don't want to go on too much more, I want you just to jump in, listen to Alex, he's a fascinating guy, um, incredibly, incredibly intelligent. Sit back and listen to what he has to say. the main street in, in Newcastle, Northumberland Street, to get here. I've ended up in in a part of a building that I just mentioned before felt a little bit surreal. It felt like um, landing in a parallel universe. Can you just explain a little bit about where we are and, and the setting where we're having this podcast?
1: Yeah, my studio is in Ampersand Inventions, which is the fourth floor of Commercial Union House, which is the big sort of Uh, the one that sticks out over the road opposite the Tyneside Cinema, so anyone in Newcastle would sort of know it and recognise it. And it's now got that Hadrian's Teepee bar next door, which is where the old Odeon Cinema used to be that was knocked down uh, this year. And this building, uh, Commercial Union House, has been turned into like a mixed-use community interest company building. So after the credit crunch and the banking crisis in 2008, A bunch of artists and sort of more creative types moved into these empty buildings because it was cheaper for them to be in there for the owners than if they were empty, Uh, could be in use being used in that way. And um, this building is run by I think it's a company called White Box or Orbis uh, by some really, really great people who've been interested in helping other businesses, helping other creatives, small industries, small sole traders just get a really good foothold in the city centre. Uh, so there's it's, So this building is full of designers, artists, makers, fashion entrepreneurs, writers, taxidermists, uh, record label businesses. You know all of you know, theatres. You know painters. Um, and it's really it's a really great hub for creative interaction uh, of bringing like lots of people together. And the explore lifelong learning people, sort of, you know, all of those in their sort of later years who are still like really got sharp minds and want to keep learning, mm. who've just had their Christmas party today, <laughs> you know. Um So it's a really, it's a great place, and it's a, it's a really important part of like a city centre to have um, that's not driven by commerce or shopping, where loads of creative type of people can come together, bump into each other in corridors, have conversations. Get on with their work in the studio. Interact, you know, make it a really, really sort of like really nice, cheap, cheap, which is important. Creative, artistic center, uh, right in, right within a city. Um, and you don't, you don't get that very often, you know. No. You know, you, there's no way this type of building would be able to, you know, you could afford it in like centre of London or even centre <laughs> of Manchester, <laughs> but but here, you know, it's really we're really lucky to have it. Yeah, that, that was
0: that was certainly my experience. I was only outside for about ten minutes before, before I met you, but within the space of ten minutes, everybody was uh, friendly and having conversations. I met a lady from Alabama of all places, which was quite, which was quite nice. Um, and yeah, it was I'm um, sort of walking down the street in Newcastle and ten minutes later I'm looking at Star Wars sculptures and there's, there's there's amazing art on the walls of Newcastle the Time Bridge and there's like a graphic um, picture that was that was amazing I, nice. I was quite impressed by that yeah. um, so Alex I was looking at your um, I think it was your Instagram was It was your Instagram or your Twitter feed I can't remember which one I think it was your Twitter one you describe yourself as academic author runner and vegan and now you're a podcaster as well yeah yeah well I'm going to get into all of those things um and the podcasts you've been putting out there recently and also your book um I've sort of I've read your book and I've been listening to your podcasts over the last few weeks and I've thoroughly enjoyed them and I want to get into all that but what I want to do is just just take it right back and and start at the beginning and and you do talk in your book about your your sort of childhood and, and your adolescence and if you don't mind me saying, perhaps your difficult adolescence in, in South London, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, could you talk to me a little bit about that and, and, and what your childhood was
1: like? Yeah, you know, there's, there's like two forms of like trauma. Well, one is like that really acute form of, you know, like that, that really is very unfortunate that does happen to people, like, you know, you're in a car accident or something, you know, um, or something very traumatic happens to you that's quite acute. And then there's that low-level sort of trauma that you can get from sort of living in... Families aren't quite working, you know, sort of like, you know, families with alcoholic parents, um, family, you know, people who find themselves in poverty, etc. And, and I didn't have a terrible childhood at all, but there was certainly mm-hmm. a lot of that low level sort of um, uh, disc, you know, discomfort, unpredictability of being sort of a child mm-hmm. in a uh, family where my parents divorced when I was two, uh, my father was an alcoholic uh, my mum works like two, three jobs to sort mm-hmm. of keep the roof over our heads. You mm-hmm. know, um, her. You know, she had her own trauma uh, um, that she that we never knew as children that she kept hid from us. That, okay. that she actually uh, she gave birth to my half sister when she was sixteen. She ran away from home, gave birth on the train station platform, and then had to give up. That baby for adoption, uh, you know, so you know, so like there's all these, you know, these secrets and difficulties within mm-hmm. family that you know, but probably many, many people have, you know, it's, mm-hmm. not, it's not an uncommon thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but sort of living in that, living in that sense of like single parent family, being brought up, never quite knowing what your parents are going to do, mm-hmm. you know, um, and uh, but I was actually very, I was actually very lucky, well, very loving sort of parents. But unpredictable okay. within that sort of setting of like working class, yeah. not very, not very wealthy, having to do two three jobs, you know, mm-hmm. and therefore your mother putting in all of that effort to keep the roof over your head and keep your bellies full, but mm-hmm. really no time for anything else. You yeah, know what I mean, we, yeah. you know, we were never read stories as kids. Okay. you know, what I mean, we have never taken on holidays. that type of just prop working class sort of background. I think yeah. Okay, and do you, do you see your dad now at all? No, my dad is a missing person. He okay, went missing about ten years ago. Right. Okay, um, which you're right about in the book. Uh, the Pig in thin Air, and it was quite an interesting, um, w- quite an interesting uh, moment when I took the book on tour, um, because I definitely write and put work out into the world to, you know, you want to have an impact, you know, you want people to respond to your work and you want people to respond to it emotionally. So I knew there was a section in the book that I was going to read out as I was like taking it to book events, mm-hmm. etc. That was about this history, about the past. 'Cause I thought it was also important, you know, I wasn't the book is like a vegan memoir, it's about a road into animal advocacy and finding my place and therefore and you know anyone could find their place on the front line of activism and advocacy that suited them. <laughs> um, and I thought it was important to share the story that I hadn't always been an activist, I hadn't always been a vegan, I wasn't raised as a vegan, I was raised as a meat eater, and didn't come from sort of like a privileged position, like work middle class position, you know, it's from you know, it was working class. Uh, Meat eating, sort of like you know, typical sort of single parent, unpredictable inner city London background. So I shared that with people yeah. uh, as I was doing the book tour, so that they could see, oh yeah, this is just a normal person. You know what I mean? It's, this is just a normal person who's found their uh, their place, um, being a vegan, being compassionate for animals, being a writer. And so I read out a part in the book that was about this background, that was about, and that mentions my father being missing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then I was sort of challenged on it actually. So I'd, you know, by by a man in the audience. Okay. Um, and uh, so I, you know, I I prepared for lots of art, lots of questions about sort of veganism, about animal activism. But I hadn't prepared for this. <laughs> I hadn't prepared for this question at all. You know. No. Uh, and it's fair enough. I read it out, and he was like, "Well, you know, you hear this is a vegan book so it's, You know, blah blah blah. Why why bother mentioning that stuff about your father?" Um, and actually, it was, it was an interesting question, and it was interesting to be able to answer it and say, "Well, actually, one of the uh, one of the interesting things about veganism and sort of animal advocacy, uh, and I know you want to get into that more, you know, Definitely, down the yeah, road yeah. later. Yeah, yeah. But um, you know, two thirds of vegans are women. Most of uh, the animal organ- animal activism organisations have always been run by women, and most of the uh, advocacy has been done by women." Um, uh and un- however still unfortunately the top of the organizations and the big figures tend still to be the, the men you know mm-hmm. so, the mm-hmm. women don't get the um the credit that they deserve for mm-hmm. doing the majority mm-hmm. of the work and mm-hmm. thinking through the majority of the thoughts mm-hmm. uh and I t- because but because I was raised really in a female household I was raised by my mum with my sister and me so it was a gen- you know and um uh without a father figure being present it's almost like I had less of those Macho masculine models to unchain myself from to move towards what is more considered to be more feminine, more Mm -hmm. like um, emotional uh, roles, such as being more compassionate towards animals, etc. And I don't know if that's true or not, Mm -hmm. and it plays around with some like really big sort of uh, uh, stereotypes, really. Mm -hmm. But it was, uh, it just like him, the, the person in the audience asked me the question. Why have you brought that up? Why it's important? I was like, well, maybe this is why it's important actually, because um, I do, because I've spent the last year, this year, on tour, going to all of the vegan festivals, doing talks about men and veganism, uh, from research I've done in, interviewing forty vegan men, and putting this out there in front of people, saying why are more why are more women than men vegan? Mm-hmm. Why are more women than men working in animal activism? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why are more women generally? Than men more compassionate to animals, and what did you find? Um, uh, I don't think there's any answers to that yet, but mm. uh, well, there are actually, to be honest. But it's not as if it's not a question of like, finding; it, it's a question of what we do about it. Okay, there, you know, there's absolutely no doubt um, from from the, not a huge amount of research that's been done, but like a little bit of research that's been done, a little and a little bit of the the books that have been written about it, that. Um, and Brian Luke writes about this really well in his 2007 book Brutal which is all about this relationship between men and the exploitation of animals is that the exploitation of animals suits uh, it benefits the institutions of masculinity and malehood in a way that it doesn't benefit women you know so exploiting animals gives men that ability to dominate it gives them that sense of power it gives them a sense of being the you know the the hunter. You know the person mm-hmm. who brings home the mm-hmm. bacon. You know mm-hmm. whatever, you know frame. Yeah. you want to put on it, and it doesn't benefit women in that way. You know the 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 the, the, uh, the typical stereotypical gendered idea of a woman is you know that idea of the being the compassionate, the nurturer, etc. Yeah. The typical stereotypical gendered view of the man is, you know, the aggressor, the powerful, the mm-hmm. alpha male, the mm-hmm. hunter, mm-hmm. exploiting others, be that women or other human beings or animals. Suits the institutions of masculinity and men, you know, and you look at that through hunting. You look at it through people who work in the slaughterhouses. You look at it through the people who you know um, dominate the animal agriculture industries. Um, it's it's mainly men, yeah. So what? So really, it's like we know that. What do we do about it? You know, how do we how do we actually get men to stop thinking that this masculinity equals meat? You know, we have to have our barbecues. We have to have our burgers. You know how can we break away from that to think it's not doing men any good, you know it's it's hurting men's health, it's hurting the environment, it's hurting their families. So how do we and how do we actually unpick that, unpick those sort of um, uh, threads to, uh, you know, just find a better way to be men. Actually, <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that
0: that dovetails quite nicely into. Your, po- your recent yeah. podcast um, about specifically your, your first podcast is about relinquishing masculinity and uh, the, the sort of the destructive habits of men and how ultimately that's going to um, help save the planet can you just explain a little bit more about um,
1: what men can do to relinquish their masculinity? Yeah, yeah sure um, I mean just to I mean, just to rewind a bit, I realise I've sort of, you know, jumped straight into the subject. Um, You know, I'm uh, I'm mainly a writer. You know, my background is um, sort of like English literature, creative writing, journalism. Uh, And for the last 10 years, I've been sort of teaching journalism and creative writing. Uh, And I've always wanted to write books. Um, And I've always had this uh, sense of being... Not not torn, but certainly having um, two sort of two sort of like pulling uh, motivations, like um, like if you if you think about sort of Plato's analogy of the um, Plato's chariot, which has like the you know and it's you know it's just a very basic metaphor, but like the white horse of reason and the dark horse of passion Mm -hmm. pulling along this Mm -hmm. pulling along this chariot, Mm -hmm. the good charioteer whoever she is you know has to balance out that reason and passion mm-hmm. to to, mm-hmm. to to keep that chariot going straight you know so and but if you if you use that idea and just think well for me my chariot has been that pull of writing fiction which actually can be really self indulgent you mm-hmm. know you lock yourself away in a room mm-hmm. for a year to write a book that is just the, the book is the book it's not trying to change the world it's mm-hmm. just being a piece of art mm-hmm. and then on the other side you've got this Desire to be an activist and be an advocate and change the world mm-hmm. um, and often they, those don't really go together very well mm-hmm. so for me I've, I've been working towards how you know really an understanding of that really an understanding of that my chariot isn't just pulled by one horse it's pulled by both mm-hmm. and actually I need to balance that out and so um, so the the non fiction book that I wrote, the Pig in Thin Air, that came out last year, which which we've been talking about, is a is a vegan memoir, and it is about activism, and it's yeah. like it is that you know being pulled by that horse that's all about, and it's a terrible metaphor to use for vegans because we shouldn't be <laughs> using horses in any way, you know, for our own benefit, um, uh, virtual horse, you know, we call that so, yes, but um, uh, that was very much about that, and I've and I've just spent the last year right last two years actually writing a novel. Which has which has animal related themes in it, and environmental related themes in it, but it's just it's a it's much more it's a it's a novel that's a piece of art rather okay. than trying to change the world and trying to change people's behaviour. Yeah. But then what I've been thinking about, I think you know, toying around for a long time, it's probably as you have, you know, thinking about well, how, what other platform can I build for me to explore the issues that I'm interested in? Yeah. and, and learn along the way. Um, and that is out there that is getting an audience that is a bit more um, uh, immediate than writing a book because a book takes a long time to write, you know, you, and you may not get a lot of feedback for it anyway when it is out there. Mm-hmm. And so, what happened was um, the Newbridge Project, which is an arts commissioning agency in Newcastle, put out this call to do uh, around this uh, theme of deep adaptation, which was all about sort of looking at how we can go deeper in our adaptations to live more sustainably, really. Uh, and healthily uh, facing the crisis that we do like climate change biodiversity loss etc and I started working with them and and generated an idea and came up with this idea of let's do a podcast Mm -hmm. around these themes so were you commissioned by them to yeah commissioned by Newbridge Project to produce these eight oral narratives as they were because in a way it's very different from this type of podcast it's more like a traditional radio programme that's knitted together lots of interviews Mm -hmm. but Um, but the uh, so I've been commissioned to produce these eight narratives that were all about like how do we really think about going deeper in our adaptations to the crisis we face Mm -hmm. so it isn't just about recycling it isn't just about sort of thinking do we need to give up our cars although that's important it's more looking at the reasons why people don't give up their cars and so the first uh, the, the podcast is framed over three sort of interlinking themes out of this deep adaptation agenda, which comes from a guy called Professor Jen Bendell, who is a professor of sustainability and leadership at Cumbria University, and uh, the three sort of like strands of it are: what do we need to relinquish? Um, where do we need to build resilience? And what do we, what can we learn from older ways of older practices that we can restore? Uh, that might be more sustainable and healthier for us than mm-hmm. the way we do things now. Mm-hmm. So, these first three podcast narratives have all been about thinking about what we need to relinquish yeah. in a much deeper, integral way. Yeah. And actually, when you look at the state of the world, you think, "Well, what are the things that we really need to relinquish?" And you know, toxic. This whole idea of masculinity and its toxic impact is central because um, uh, that sense of the the, the normative white. Middle-class, powerful man, is really the cause of most of our global environmental, political, social problems. We, we haven't got a good track record, do we, no, as men? Absolutely, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And it, it, you know, and I, I, you can't use that phrase "not all men" because actually every man benefits from it, and not equally. Mm-hmm. You know, like men who are disabled, men of colour, uh, men who are sort of like not the, you know, straight. You know, white Western guy. You know, so men who are gay, bisexual. Not everyone benefits from that the uh, the privilege of masculinity <laughs> equally. <laughs> but uh, masculinity and malehood and uh, the privilege that men do uh, uh, do benefit from gives them these great powers that they that they want to keep hold of. You know, and um, and really they dom- we've dominated the planet to the point of its destruction and we've mm-hmm. dominated other beings other other humans and other non-human species mm-hmm. to the point of their destruction you mm-hmm. know as in we're facing the sixth mass extinction and that is caused by humans mm-hmm. it isn't caused by every human it's mostly caused by white western men you know so if we're going to think about how we need to live more sustainably into 2100 we've got to think about how we relinquish what is in the end just a box gender gender masculinity is just a box it's just a category it's just an idea doesn't fit you know it doesn't fit for me doesn't fit for you doesn't fit for most of the people who'll be listening to this mm-hmm. no what it doesn't fit for anyone no to be honest i think it was um
0: christopher hitchens who said a few years ago a few years ago before he passed away that the way that we move forward is a more matriarchal society would would guys men don't have a track record, but but why would they want to relinquish that power? Because you know it, they have the power. Why would why do they want yeah. uh, anything to change? The, the status quo is 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 ultimately, as opposed what what they desire. Um, the format I was really interested in the way that you wanted people to listen to it as they're walking around the city of Newcastle and, and exploring the different sites as you as you narrate the podcast as you go on. Um, what was great for me, as we mentioned before, I cycle, as you do, um, and I come along the, the River Tyne from, from west to east, and I come past the Metro Centre, and I go over the Swing Bridge, I come up Grey Street, and what was lovely was... You were starting to talk about all these places in Newcastle, which I'd like you to to mention in a moment. All these male establishments, or built by men, or named after men, and and as I'm cycling past them, I'd never realise all these buildings that that are named after men. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean the 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 reason why we wanted to do the podcast as sort of walks and participative and sort of. Um, you know, collaborative uh, walks taking groups of people around, but also anyone can download the podcast at any time and yeah. do the walk on their own. Uh-huh. Was because, um, and the reason why the podcast is called Shift and Signal in, in some ways is because uh, if you know anything about sort of like the way that change happens within our sort of human psyche and bodies, is that change is, um, I write about it in my book, Changes. Bodily change, you know, like we don't change as individuals unless we are uh, registering that change in an embodied way. Uh, And a really good example of that would be uh, how someone can go be a bad sleeper and go through a sleep program, which is a CBT program, Cognitive and Behavioural Therapy. Which you did, yes? Yeah, I did, yeah. yeah. Uh Um, And it's the behavioural change uh, from moving to be a bad sleeper to being a good sleeper. That's the really important part of it that, that loosens up the cognitive hold that the identification of being a good bad good or bad sleeper might have on you. So as it, so, if you are a bad sleeper, you know you'll roll around in bed for four or five hours, get three hours mm-hmm. sleep. You've been in bed for eight hours. Mm-hmm. You know, um, like you go to bed with your phone scrolling through for you know, yep. you know, keep you up, etc. You've got loads of stuff in your bedroom, etc., etc. Um, what they do on a sleep program is they get rid of all of that bad behaviour, they improve your sleep hygiene, so there's nothing in your bedroom, you don't go to bed with any sort of uh, screens, uh, you're only in bed for the amount of time you sleep, so if you're not sleeping you have to get up, etc., etc. And by resetting your behaviour in an embodied way, it's a physical act, uh, it then improves your sleep. And then because you no longer have the behaviours on which you can pin the identity as a bad sleeper, mm-hmm. Then you can't identify it with it anymore, and so the change comes around through embodied behavioral, you know, difference, and that's what I really wanted to had learnt um, and wanted to take into something like a podcast. Thinking about if I'm asking people to change, if we're asking people to think about, I'm going to relinquish my masculinity, mm-hmm. I'm going to relinquish my femininity, I'm going to even relinquish my humanity. Mm-hmm. As, a, as categories of which we believe we are we have to get people thinking about physical embodied difference so the walk in a way is a microcosm of that so it takes people around the city of Newcastle thinking well here are the here are the stuck places of categorization so if we're thinking about masculinity, and I know, the, and I get, these are these are generalisations, and it's not, and as I think, I hope I make clear on the podcast, I want to make clear now, is that it's not simply black and white. It's not like those men are bad, these men are good, you know. Um, but if you think about what's stereotypical about male derma masculinity in Newcastle, we go, okay, St James's Park football. You think about big market, you know, nights out, you know, you think about sort of. Um, Eldon Square and Grey's monument this massive phallic tower in the middle of town. You know, you think about all of uh, those things that represent the history of patriarchal male privilege, mm-hmm. and where men's achievements and, um, and men's lives and men's enjoyments are celebrated in the city. So, this the, the podcast was about starting in those places, looking at those monuments, looking at those. Um, uh, um, statues to the footballers yeah. looking at all of the shops named after the men mm-hmm. and if you stand in the middle of Monument in Newcastle mm-hmm. you look around you everything is named after a man yeah, from it it, Jamie's Italian yeah. to Lloyd's Bank yeah. to Byron Burgers to um, Five Guys at the five guys yeah. etc yeah. you know, and, and Keel's like you know even like you know, th- places where you know it's mainly women who go there to mm-hmm. shop to mm-hmm. buy a particular sort of like product all named after men it's yeah. all celebrated Dr. Martins yeah. you know all celebrating male achievement yeah and so the whole idea of the podcast was to get people to slow down look at these things think about this feels like a stuck way of doing culture and society mm-hmm. and then get them walking physically moving their bodies into places where we're thinking and having conversations about different ways of doing things mm-hmm. so you know we went across um, uh, we went in the end. The podcast took people to the Newbridge project, where we actually had a performance by two lesbian poets about Trump and his damaging, um, uh, uh, his uh, signing off the Environmental Protection Agency uh, in America. So that's why it's called Shift and Signal. It's about moving people from stuck ways of. Um, being thinking about this is the only way we can do masculinity this is the only way we can do sort of like cities and the way we live and moving them through that and getting them to think about shifting towards and signaling towards other ways of sort of practicing being decent human being decent beings really um, that break that step out of those boxes yeah I think there's maybe one or two
0: statues of, of women in Newcastle um, there's certainly one where I work up at the the RVI, the hospital, the Royal Victoria Infirmary. And even that as a statue that, that I believe I'm right in saying was built by men or it's celebrating men. For the listeners out there, if they want to listen to that podcast and download it, do they just get it from iTunes?
1: Yeah, they can do it from iTunes. Um, there's, the, the website for it is shiftandsignal.space and... Uh, each of the podcasts, each of these eight podcasts, has a page on there. So, and the links will click through either to you, either to iTunes or to SoundCloud, mm-hmm. where they can stream it if they don't have an Apple device.
0: You talk about an image that um, s- s- stuck with you. And you mentioned it a few times through the book. Um, it was an image of a pig escaping uh, a truck. I was it in China. Yes. Yeah. Um, that image seemed to have a big impact on you. Can you talk a little bit about what? Well, first of all, why that image, but also why the pig? Yeah. Yeah. There's uh, um, there's lots of animals out there who, who suffer horrendously and, and who are tortured and murdered
1: um why why the pig uh, um I think it was just because on my sort of journey um towards being a vegan and being an advocate for animals I think I started um it's it's a, it's a sort of it's a it's a cat whale pig story I guess in that you know I, I was I grew up. We grew up cats. My granddad had cats. Mm -hmm. We had cats. Um, I think I first went vegetarian for the animals when I was about seventeen, after seeing the story about like the slaughter of whales. You know, Mm -hmm. the Icelandic or Japanese slaughter of whales, Um, and then didn't want any part of that. But um, and went vegetarian, thinking, yeah, I don't want to be, I don't want to be hurting animals, and didn't think I didn't know anything better in terms like the dairy or egg industry, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then around sort of like the age of 35, 34, 35 was like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, my life isn't quite as I want it. It's, everything's not quite as right. Um, I need to go further. I don't really need to think about how what I'm doing and how I'm living. And uh, that was really about the time probably got onto Facebook as well, social media, Facebook and Twitter started really taking off in the UK. And then, um, you know, that was about 2007, 2008. And that's when started seeing uh Footage for the first time of sort of animals within the um, animal agriculture industry, Uh, particularly from Canada and America. Footage Mm -hmm. of what turned out to be mainly pigs, Mm -hmm. Um, because a lot of that footage came from an organisation called Toronto Pig Safe, which was the uh, first group of this of the global save movement, which protests, holds vigils outside slaughterhouses to bear witness to what's go- happening to the animals as they're going into slaughterhouses, captures footage to on video and image uh, photos so that it can be shared through social media to raise awareness for other people who aren't at the slaughterhouses and also to give the animals some comfort as well, mm-hmm. I suppose, in terms of like, those uh, water-supplied watermelons, mm-hmm. just trying trying to give the animals some, like a, a moment of compassion. Mm-hmm. Uh, before they're um, taken into the storehouses and killed. So a lot of that footage that I saw when I was reassessing my relationships to the non-human was of pigs Mm -hmm. because that's where the footage was coming from. Mm -hmm. And then when you do that research and you discover that pigs are, um, through all of the different cognitive tests that they do on animals, come out as more intelligent than dogs... Mm -hmm. um, and when you think about sort of like the way that they you know uh, a sow uh, mother will have different calls to all of its mm-hmm. you know 10 12 mm-hmm. piglets um, when they can live for up to 15 years in matriarchal societies very yeah. often yeah. Uh, but most of the pigs who are slaughtered are babies really sit yeah. five, 5 6 months yeah. and you and you understand the um, the suffering that they must go through as these incredibly intelligent, sentient, uh, communal, um, family-based animals. The gr- gregarious. The gregarious, yeah. completely, yeah. yeah. Then, then you, you suddenly go, I really don't want any more part of that. Uh-huh. And I wasn't really eating. I wasn't eating meat anyway. Uh-huh. But what it did was open my eyes up to the animal agriculture industry. And then started finding out about cows and dairy and mm-hmm. eggs mm-hmm. and even things like honey. You know mm-hmm. the way the bees are treated so awfully. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone thinks, well, it's only honey. What's yeah. the problem?" But yeah. you know, it's it's the, the way the bees are treated is just yeah. so awful that yeah. it's not it can never be a vegan uh-huh. product. So, and then so in, in many ways these things are timing. You know, so and then that image of a pig came. I came across that image of the pig. I think it was in the Metro newspaper. Cause okay. It was, oh really? It was, yeah, because right. it's such a stark image uh-huh. of a pig hanging in midair. Yeah. Uh, having jumped out of the back of a uh, slaughter ha- a truck on the way to a slaughterhouse in China. Yeah. So they're not the, you know, the, it's much more rural China, so they're not the big prison buses that, you know, the animals in this country in America mm-hmm. will be on, where there is no top to jump out of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this pig made it out, and it, f- it made it onto the road, and it survived. And because this pig had stepped out of the mass of billions because it had in some way shown itself to have a desire to live in the way that we have a desire to live, yeah. all of a sudden, we root for it. It's on our, you know, we're on its side. You know, yeah, it's, it's the escape escape escape, 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 escape. It was given a name by the Chinese it's police. Yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, they adopted it as their mascot. The, yeah. lo- the, local, the local police. The local police in China, yeah. And, but, the, but the image is a really striking one because it's a really striking, uh, almost like portrait mm-hmm. picture um, of this pig just hanging suspended in air. And the only other time you see pigs in that position, yeah. face down towards the ground, mm-hmm. legs up in the air, is when their back leg is being chained up on the kill line. So this pig was jumping for freedom and it was in exactly that same position it would be in a few hours time if it hadn't jumped for freedom. And the background of that image is also really important because it's in China, where some of the, which has some of the worst air pollution in the world. And uh, there's it's a nice bright summer day background in the image, which sort of belies the threat of climate change that is hidden there in the air. And I have a background in sort of climate change analysis and climate change campaigning. And what I really wanted to do with the book was to bring together those two worlds of animal agriculture and climate change, because... For those who have seen the film Cowspiracy and quite a few people have now, particularly in the vegan sort of scene in the vegan world, um, that film makes very clear the links that have been around for a long time. To be mm-hmm. honest, between the impact of animal agriculture on greenhouse gases and their effect on climate change. So, for if none of your, if you, you know, I'm sure many of your listeners already know this, but animal agriculture is the industry that has the biggest impact on greenhouse gas greenhouse gas emissions and climate change so going vegan is the best thing that you can do if you care about the environment it's not the only thing you can do but it's it's almost the best thing you can do
0: yeah i think um i think the statistic is it's it's anywhere between 14 and 51 percent and no matter which statistic that you look at it certainly um outstrips transport yeah the 14 the the, the the is it two thousand eight UN the
1: conservative as in with a small C uh-huh. uh, perspective is somewhere between fourteen and eighteen percent. Okay. Yeah. And but but that fifty one percent was yeah. produced uh, in a report by the World Watch Institute in two thousand and nine. Okay. Um, by two uh, two people who uh, one of those who's actually passed away, but the other person strongly defends that analysis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because it takes into account the animals' breathing and the, you know, the carbon dioxide and everything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because when you actually look at, a, if you did like a pie chart mm-hmm. to look at like the mass of animal life on this planet, you would have it about about twenty percent of it is human. Mm-hmm. About ninety four percent of it is the animals in agri- ag- animal agriculture, mm-hmm. and then all of wildlife all of the wildlife all the elephants and tigers and bears and monkeys and insects and everything else is like within a 4 or 5% slice tiny mm-hmm. you know so when you actually think about the actual breathing and the methane and all of the gasses that are used and recycled and put out produced by those that mass of farmed agricultured animal life of course it's going to make a big difference so that's why those that's why those figures differ so much cuz the UN The lower end don't take that into account, the higher end do. Ah, I didn't know that. Interesting. What happened in Vancouver was that I turned up on this wonderful, best person, one of the best people I've ever met, you know, Mary Chris Staples, like a wonderful activist, Really welcoming. I turned up, but it's just her that day. Okay. And so she turns up on her own, stands there, at a busy traffic intersection, uh-huh. with billboards on wow. images of chickens yeah. saying, "You know, this is a slaughterhouse. Look what happens. Ten thousand chickens here killed every day." Mm-hmm. Waving at the passers-by, mm-hmm. you know, and feeling no shame, mm-hmm. nor should she, you know. Mm-hmm. And then I get there and she's like, oh, I'm so pleased you're here, et cetera. And and I was feeling quite nervous and exposed and whatever. And then she's like, I've got to go to the toilet. Put this on. She (laughs) put the placard over my head, ran off to the toilet. And I'm standing there on my own, facing the traffic and all these people looking at me going, you're an activist. And I'm like, I'm not an activist. I've just just turned up. How did you feel? How did you feel? Yeah, yeah, very exposed. Very exposed, very vulnerable, Uh very scared. uh, um, Very sort of, couldn't smile, couldn't wave. You know, very paralysed in a way, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but that was my initiation into yeah. into you know doing something that was physically different mm-hmm. from from what I'd been doing before. Yeah, I'm, personally, that that's where I'm at now.
0: Yeah, I haven't done anything like that. I was invited to to attend a vigil yeah. by by actually a, mu- a mutual friend of ours, and and I couldn't do it. Yeah. I couldn't go. And and in your book, you talked about. Um, perhaps your reluctance to do so and I'm definitely in that position and, and I, I I still don't know the reason why I don't know why I didn't go I think I perhaps maybe felt a little bit embarrassed yeah. you know it's, it's um, I've been a vegan for a long time and I've got my various reasons for being a vegan but the idea of, of, of standing and, and, and to use that word that you just used to be exposed in that situation um yeah, I certainly cried off from that. I mean, have you got any advice? Or would you say it's some, or even for the listener out there who might be in a similar position, is it something that you maybe just have to do and then it gets a little bit easier each time? Or do you think it's each to their own? Some people you know, w- would
1: struggle anyway doing something like that. Yeah, well, it's interesting because I can stand up and do a talk in front of 50, 500, yeah. 5,000 people okay. and feel not a huge amount of worry about that. Mm-hmm. But put me on a high street with a leaflet in my hand and tell me go and put this leaflet into someone's hand. I I cannot do it. So why I do you think what, do why it. do you think that is? What you because um, I don't know. I find that I find that um, when I'm standing up on stage in front of people doing a talk about men and veganism, I've got the permission to do it. They've come to hear me talk. Yeah. yeah? Um, on a high street, um, you know, you're shoving a leaflet into someone's hands you know it's that whole permission thing you don't have it yeah. like, I get you know I'm, I'm, I get quite um, I don't find that comfortable no. at all no. and it's not to so say I can't do it no. but I, I don't find it comfortable mm-hmm. so there is an element there's you know there is an element of each to their own yeah but um, but I definitely think everyone should try each of those things you know because then at least you've done that you've tried it mm-hmm. and the thing about the the SAVE movement, which is global now, there's about 250 groups across maybe 40 countries around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've got a group here in the northeast, mm-hmm. um, And we uh, do vigils every 10 days or two weeks outside the uh, Linden Foods Slaughterhouse in Burrowden, which is near Cramington. And it's quite a different setup, actually. It's not a very busy road. Uh, you don't get as many people walking past. You get buses going past and traffic, whatever, but not a huge amount. So, in a way, it you you are far less exposed there um, to passers by. Um, but you obviously do see people working in slaughterhouses, and you obviously see the trucks coming in. So yeah. there are some there are, there are different elements that are that, are, that are part of this, but the most important part of it is the is this act of bearing witness, and to bear witness means to. Is to carry a burden because the the word is there bearing. It's like um, you know, it's like it's, it's a weight. It's something that you have to carry. It's a burden that you that you take on a responsibility for. And the witnessing is seeing something that's happening. That if you're not there as the witness to it, goes unseen. And if it's morally wrong, if you believe it's morally wrong, and I believe that the you know the uh, exploitation and killing of animals is morally wrong, then. Um, then you have to witness, you have to bear witness to that, so it's a case of is and I'm writing a book my next book will be about bearing witness It's like is bearing witness a moral duty? Mm-hmm. Is it a duty for all of us to bear witness to things that are morally wrong, mm-hmm. and if we don't bear witness to it and therefore we can't provide testimony mm-hmm. of what is of what is morally wrong, mm-hmm. then it goes unseen and it doesn't get challenged mm-hmm. so um there the, the 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 advice is the to think about it in a couple of ways, one being. Um, bearing witness is something that's really profound and can change you generally for the better many people feel uncomfortable and uh, as if they emotionally won't be able to deal with seeing the animals going into slaughter but generally I'd say what happens there is that most people very quickly understand even if they do get upset that actually their upset isn't that important they're there for the animals and actually that's what's important so people do get over that quite quickly Mm -hmm. Mm and there are also other things it's in like everyone can play a different role there Mm -hmm. and uh, so some people never go near the animals and take um, some people just talk to the truck drivers some people help slow walk the trucks Uh, some people do take the footage other people are health and safety and observers you know so everyone's got a sort of different role Um, and sometimes it's also about making people sort of feel comfortable uh, in something that they already are comfortable with so Uh, in Manchester so this save movement started in the UK in Manchester in February 2016 and the tulip slaughterhouse there is a pig slaughterhouse and it gets about two or three thousand pigs a day um, at its maximum and really big trucks but one of the interesting things about it is that it's got, um, it's got a canal down one side of it and then round the back it's like a road and stuff. So you can actually go, all, you can walk all the way around this slaughterhouse. It's almost like a little island. Mm-hmm. And at an all day vigil in Manchester uh, to bring lots of people down, one of the things we did was organise a 16 hour relay race around the slaughterhouse. So someone would be running at, at all, all the time around the slaughterhouse and we did like a big relay. And that brought down a load of vegan runners who uh, from the vegan runners club who were vegan, cared about animals but had never done any activism and felt uncomfortable standing in front of a storehouse holding a placard being seen as activist, but they got running you know they oh, and i'm a runner i 'm a vegan runner, I can do that I can run around mm-hmm. so what it did it, it, it um it sort of uh, disarmed their um nervousness mm-hmm. and uh, anxiety mm-hmm. to go well I'm going to be doing something I feel comfortable with which is running and if running can be a form of activism when well, I believe it can you know you moving your body however you want to be an advocate for animals you can probably find a way to do it they came down and ran so they just they did these half mile loops around the slaughterhouse and a couple of them ran further that day than they'd ever run because at one point as you go around the slaughterhouse. You can hear the gas chamber where the pigs go into the gas chamber and get gassed and they scream like hell. And if you stand there for five, ten minutes, it's it's almost like emotionally too much to bear. But if you run past it and you hear it, you hear it for five seconds and it's awful, but you run on and mm-hmm. you keep going. Mm-hmm. But what people were saying is that every time they came around and heard it, they went, I've got to go one more time. Yeah. So people who'd only ever run eight miles max mm-hmm. in their life mm-hmm. around thirteen mm-hmm. miles that day, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And we did totally, I think about four hundred and forty miles between us from eight in the morning till ten at night. So there are other ways to think about um, people coming along to vigils and bearing witness mm-hmm. and using their skills or what they feel comfortable with. So it, yeah. you know, so Yeah,
0: yeah, and and being present in, in different ways. And that anxiety or, or apprehension that you talked about there, yeah. I certainly felt that, and 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 that was the the reason for me ultimately not doing it. Um, but you know, as we're talking here, it's coming back to me, and I feel guilt because you know this is about the animal; it's about being present mm. uh, there for the animal. And and the reason the reason I feel guilt is my, my first and, and possibly only thought was, okay, what repercussions could this have on me? And I think more than anything, it was professionally. Mm. So, you know, whether we're talking about, you know, your altercation in, in, in Toronto or um, any potential altercation, I was thinking, okay, so if, the, if the, there's police there or if I get involved in something unsavoury, what then happens to me professionally? So I think the idea, and I love that, the idea of, of going somewhere like that and just running mm. is, it's a beautiful idea. Um, but when you describe the the screams of the pigs... Yeah, I can't imagine. I can't imagine what, what that must be like. But I feel, I genuinely feel, it's something that I need to do, yeah. and actually, it is something that I want to do. Yeah. Um,
1: so, well, there's another. I mean, one of the other ways of thinking about it again, the metaphor is um, is that you know, going back to this idea of like it's bearing witness. You know, you you you're bearing, you're lit, you're carrying the burden of bearing witness of, of witnessing. And if you think about it in terms of like going to the gym, like when you go to the gym and you and you and you. And you, uh, you know, you um, use weights to build muscle. You bear, you bear that weight to build muscle. You know, like and that's what you're doing. You know, like you're put, you're putting that extra weight on your body through the dumbbells and the machines to be able to uh, uh, exercise those muscles, mm-hmm. stretch them. You bear that weight. Next time you can bear more, mm-hmm. and it's exactly the same with witnessing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You go along to the vigils and you're bearing the witnessing, mm-hmm. and it builds in you the ability to bear it more next time, and you build up that strength yep. to and and it is a, it's a moral strength really. Uh-huh. You know, so it that is generally how it works. It's not to say that it doesn't uh, it won't affect you, you know it stops affecting you and it yep. stops being traumatic or whatever, yep. but and often people have to take time out mm-hmm. from it. You know, it's mm-hmm. fine. You know, but. But actually, when you're doing it more often, uh, it does strengthen your, I guess, moral uh, ability to be compassionate for the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what I'd like
0: to do is, is, is put my sort of not myself on the line here, but what what I'd like to do is attend one. Could I come with you?
1: Yeah, of course. Yeah. 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 Could yeah.
0: we Could we arrange that? Yeah. Um, well, the next one is is next week. Okay. Yeah. During the week or on a weekend? Uh, <laughs> that's no, not that's all week. that excuse I'm trying to get in yeah, already. Yeah. So, did you say it was in the weekend? Yes, yeah, during the week. During the week. So, if, if, we, if we think about those animals and we go back to, to your your fellowship or, or your, your journey ac- across the, the US, I'd like to talk about a guy now who, who I'm looking at in your room, a guy called Gene Bauer. There's a picture in Alex's um, study here of, of himself and Gene in is it Portland did you say? Yeah. So can you just explain a little bit about this poster here and, and and your sort of your relationship or your or your connection with Gene Bauer and also uh, who Gene Bauer is and, yeah. and and a little bit about his
1: his farm sanctuary and, and what their goals are yeah. um and, and what their objectives are. Yeah so Gene Bauer uh founded Farm Sanctuary back in nineteen eighty six in Watkins Glen in New York and he founded it with his then wife uh then partner. Um, and it it was to to establish a safe space where they could rescue animals from the farmed agriculture industry. And so, thirty years, thirty one years old now. Um, it's been like a. It's really. He's globally well known. It's been a real phenomenon in terms of establishing one of the largest and most influential animal rescue, education, and advocacy groups. He's a really nice guy. Uh, real sort of visionary for sort of animals. Very, obviously very compassionate. You know, he, th- he talks about his like spirit animal being the deer. Um, he's a runner as well and a writer. And on my fellowship, uh, at the end of my fellowship, I uh, arranged to spend 10 days at Farm Sanctuary in New York. So they have this big thing every year that everyone who listens to this podcast should go to. It's called like the Hoedown, Farm Sanctuary Hoedown. It's like a big like celebration, party, education, conference thing. Not conference, you know, much like talks and mm-hmm. de- demonstrations mm-hmm. at the farm sanctuary. Mm-hmm. You can go there and camp, and so I went along and joined in that, and then stayed for the next ten days uh, and just almost like worked as a like sort of a bit of a writer communications mini residency consultant there. They were yeah. really friendly and welcoming, yeah. and Jean was there for a little bit of it. He gave me like a lovely tour of like, the of the sanctuary, and we had a good mm-hmm. chat about sort yeah. of like what he was trying to do. And uh, at the time, uh, he was working on his new book, which is like, uh, or like a cookbook type thing called Leading the Farm Sanctuary Life, which would be the 30th anniversary book that would come out. And so I wrote my book um, after spending some time there, and then it came out in Farm Sanctuary's 30th anniversary year. I've got a chapter in the Pig in Thin Air, which is about my time at Farm Sanctuary. Mm. And so it was a really good opportunity to get back in touch with Gene and set up like a, a, a book event that we could both attend. And some really, really lovely people in Portland, a guy called Keith Eiding, um, particularly from the First Unitarian Church out there, who are really, really, really interesting in helping their community uh, think more about climate change. Uh, and if you're going to think about climate change therefore you need to think about animal agriculture they helped us set up this really lovely event in Portland mm-hmm. where you know we had 250 people in their big church obviously most of them there for Gene because you know everyone knows Gene um, uh, but when we did a really really nice event together um, where he spoke about sort of farm sanctuary and his work and I read from pig internet, the chapter from farm sanctuary and pig internet mm-hmm. uh, and it was a really really nice event uh, uh, event uh, to be sort of like in the you know on the same stage with and uh, talking to and really I un- getting to understand a little bit more uh, someone who's been in the industry been in this sort of farm. Sanctuary education advocacy space for like 30 years Mm -hmm. you know, and thinking about where he's going next and what he's doing and Mm -hmm. what their organisation is doing Mm -hmm. because Farm Sanctuary is like an amazing place and Susie Coston who's the shelter director is like an amazing woman she's the one who looks after all the animals or directs the looking after all the animals and it's just an amazing place it's a space for these animals who are generally so exploited and abused in our societies and it's their home Mm -hmm. And and I can't remember if I put it in the book or not but one of the most incredible things you'll ever see is a fully grown male dairy cow like the whole regions. they are like they're 8-9 <laughs> foot tall they're Holsteins they're bigger than horses and you're looking at these things going yeah. why don't I know cows grow yeah. this big because yeah. male dairy cows are either shot at birth yeah. bullet in the head they're sold off at 3 or 4 months for veal um, or they go into dog food, you know what I mean? Because they're mm-hmm. no use to the dairy industry. And that's why the dairy industry is so cruel. Mm-hmm. You know, it's because these all these male bobby calves are just what are they? They're waste. You know. Mm-hmm. So, and then you see them fully grown, and you think, my goodness, these are incredible creatures. Yeah, really incredible creatures. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we we were talking a little bit
0: about them before. Before we start the podcast, and, and he is the sort of the the, the up guy in America. Yeah, yeah he's yeah. he's 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 the sort of the guy that people want to be around. Yeah, he's the uh, vegan
1: triathlete. You know, he's an Iron Man. Not long ago, I believe as well. Man. Yeah, he's, yeah. Not, he's not as fast as Rich Roll. No, no. Life, But <laughs> but he's you know he's a, yeah he's and it's been and you know going back to what we were talking about in terms of masculinity, you know. Mm-hmm. For some men, uh, and I talk about this when I do the talks at the vegan festivals, um, for some men, like those types of role models are really important because yeah. what men don't want to do is think that they're going to lose their of sense of masculinity, their sense of physical uh, uh, prime, you know, because by... Moving on to what they think is rabbit food, mm-hmm. you know, it's ridiculous because mm-hmm. when you look at what gorillas eat, which yeah. is rabbit food, you know, yeah. hippos, <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. elephants, rhinos, yeah. gorillas, the like. So, yeah. having men like Gene, you know, bright, articulate, uh, you know, handsome, physically fit, running triathletes, you know, running triathlons, um, that's important for some people, you know, it's important for other men. <laughs>
0: I think be, this would be a nice place to, to finish off. We're talking about Gene and, and his, his running and, and, and his Iron Man exploits. Um, you're a runner. You, en- you enjoy running. Um, can we t- you just mentioned there about this, it was a 44-mile run that you did. Um, can we talk about that? And can you also talk about perhaps the, the parallel between running... And th- th- this idea of, of being an advocate, an animal advocate, and and perhaps you know, the expression of running and, and that idea of freedom,
1: compared with you know a caged animal. Yeah. Well, no, that's. I mean, that's exactly it. You've put your sort of you've 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 um, uh, you've hit the nail on the head there in terms of, we as human beings, uh, particularly white Western. Um, Liberal demo- demo- you know, uh, liberal democracies. You know those of us who live in them have uh, an incredible f- amount of freedom uh, over our own bodies, our own movement, and uh, in contrast to the animals who we exploit, who often have none at all, like hens in cages on battery farms, um, cows, uh, sorry, pigs um, in gestation crates, um, which are illegal in the UK, but you know across the world they're not. Um, And even so, even when you think that the RSPCA or the red tractor give you some sort of indication that that animal's had a happy life, it's just marketing, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? It's Mm -hmm. just spin. Um, They're still treated incredibly badly Mm -hmm. um, and they all end up being killed as babies, pretty much. Um, So there is that real connection and we are animals we human beings are animals and we like to think we're not but we are you know we're we're corporeal you know we're vulnerable we bleed we can be chopped up you know we can be eaten as well you know um and we like to think we're completely invulnerable and actually something physical like running when you push yourself to limits you really find out your limit as as a physical being um and it was really important for me to uh, use something that I enjoyed and like my freedom to choose to run and the physicality of that to express in some way um, the, the and to make visible the fact that we do have that choice, where, anim- where other animals that we exploit don't have that choice. Mm-hmm. And there's a really great book by um, published by Lantern Books uh, called uh, Running, Eating, Thinking. Which is a collection of essays all about this, and the for, and the introduction to that is written by a guy called Martin Rowe, who's the publisher, who expresses it really really well there. At this and and Gene expresses it really well in um, his essay in that book as well, about and uh, which I quote um, is that you know I, I, I express I express the freedom of my body um, to uh, in solidarity with those who can't, you know, and when you and the most important thing is when you look at an animal. Um, you can. They want to move. They want to move their bodies. And the minute you take a, a pig out of a gestation crate, or a hen out of a cage, or 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 a um, calf out of a veal crate, they run around. They move their bodies. They have freedom. They enjoy freedom in the same way that we do. And if we can express that through something like running, um, and make some make of it some form of processed or art or message about, hey, look at us, we're really, really free creatures and why, why would we deny that to others? I think it's a really powerful and quite profound form of activism. I think that's a great place to
0: finish. Um, thanks for your time today, Alex. I, sorry, re- I, really okay. appreci- I really appreciate it, um, sitting down with me and, and, and having this chat. If people out there want to connect with you and um, you know w- want to read your book or listen to your podcast, what what's the what's the best place? I know you mentioned about the podcast being on iTunes, but if they want to sort of find you th- find you through social media, what's the, what's the best place to? Yeah,
1: uh, yeah, on Twitter it's Alex Lockwood. Uh, on I thought oh, I can't even remember what it is on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Alex Lockwood seventy four. Can't remember. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, Facebook. I'm on there as Alex Lockwoods. Um, and you know I've got a website out there, alexlockwood.co.uk, and people can like email me through that. So I'm quite easy to find online, I think. Uh, and the book is the Pig in Thin Air, and that's on Amazon or other sort of like bookstores. So yeah, quite easy to
0: find. Okay, well, I'll, I'll put all of that in the show notes, so people can can find all that information there. Thanks, Alex. Great. Thank, Thank you. you.